These days, investors are up against a volatile macroeconomic backdrop, and yet many are contemplating increasing allocations to private debt. So why are they doing this, and within the asset class, which strategies are winning? In this special episode sponsored by Arrow Global, we're joined by Zach Louis, Chief Executive Officer of the firm. Arrow Global is a leading European investor and asset manager specialising in granular credit and real estate. Today, Louis and I will talk through some of the key issues in the private credit markets. I'm Andy Thompson, editor of Private Debt Investor, and this is Spotlight. Private credit has grown tremendously in recent years, with our latest PDI 100 ranking showing that the asset class's top fundraisers collected $1.3 trillion in capital over a five-year period ending last year. In our first such ranking nine years ago, the equivalent figure was $322 billion. Louis says he expects the asset class can continue to increase its market share, especially in Europe, where several factors contribute to a favourable landscape for private lenders. I think when you look at the types of credit that the economy needs, what you can get off the public bond market is only a subset of the relevant credit that is needed in the economy. Even more relevantly to Europe, when you look at Europe being split into 44 countries and take asset finance, for example, only 1% of asset finance is cross-border. And so you really have 44 local markets in which lenders, or in this case, private credit operators, need to create the credit products that people need. And so whether it's bridge lending, construction lending, agricultural lending, small business lending, these are activities that are core to the economy in these countries. And fundamentally, banks generally have retreated from those markets because The capital treatment under Basel II for those who are three or four for those asset classes tends to be quite heavy on the one hand. On the other hand, the operational intensity of those assets tends to be quite high. And so banks generally are not the leading players in some of those strategies. And yet they represent great credit quality if done the right way and core parts of credit demand. Unlike banks, Louis says, institutional lenders don't need daily liquidity on their credit books, giving them a leg up over the banks. I mean, many institutions from insurance companies to pension funds to endowments don't need daily liquidity. And so if you take products in the private credit market, like bridging, like agricultural lending, like construction lending, these are core to the landscape of Europe and produce very attractive risk-adjusted returns. I mean, our construction book has done a gross 11% yield without a single loss, having done more than 240 deals for 14,000 units built in the last 13 years, for example. I mean, that is a very attractive piece of private credit that I don't think will ever show up in the public bond market. So I think that's why private credit exists. And I do think that's why private credit will continue to grow and is suitable for the investor landscape and is highly relevant to the European market. In the environment we're currently in, investors are busy making calculations to assess whether their portfolio mix is the right one. Louis goes on to explain why he thinks it's a good time to be expanding allocations to private debt. I think it is challenging to get portfolio composition right for any investor. If you see the Nasdaq fall almost 30% year to date, having driven so many gains over the last couple of years, If you're an investor who's constantly trying to match a target portfolio composition, it's 
difficult to do that if your core asset classes move around by you know double digits over the scope of six months. And so the consistency of allocations to some of the categories like private credit, where you've got hard asset collateral or you have a stability of a capital structure where the underlying asset is of stable value and doesn't move around the same way that some of the public market securities have done in recent volatility as its attractions. I think you also have an issue which is very conspicuous, which is, for example, if you look at the bond market in the UK, you have so many things going on there which don't really apply to the private credit market. For example, Post-Brexit, there is a limitation of liquidity on sterling. And so that market is quite thin. Some of the investors in the high-yield market offer their clients daily liquidity. Well, if you have a thin market post-Brexit in sterling and you offer your investors daily liquidity, you can see very high levels of volatility. Now, the underlying assets that comprise those bond positions don't feel like they should be moving up and down in value as far as we've seen, for example, the UK sterling denominated high yield market move. And so if you're an investor who's trying to pursue their goals of a balanced portfolio while owning good risk adjusted return, you've got to be carefully considered as to how much of your pursuit of that return should go into volatile securities where it it might force you to liquidate things you don't want to or impact your portfolio composition due to factors that have nothing to do with the intrinsic value of the underlying assets. And therefore, I do think you will see a continued adoption of private credit and private markets generally to provide that true read on what is the underlying asset worth and therefore create a portfolio composition that gets the benefit of hopefully good risk-adjusted returns, but in a framework that has more stability because it's not reliant on daily liquidity. Looking at it from the borrower side, we're in a situation where, as Louis alluded to, the banks are under a lot of regulatory pressure and the appetite for lending is constrained in some respects. I asked him to tell us a bit more about that dynamic in terms of banks being restricted and what the implications are for private credit teams, given Arrow Global's experience of servicing £71 billion of assets, working for more than 200 banks all across Europe, and investing more than €8 billion for private credit strategies. What I would say is that from a borrower's perspective, there is really a barbell reality emerging, which is that what I would label as the vanilla products and the vanilla asset classes fit extremely well in banks. So owner-occupied, simple, reasonable LTV mortgages, for example, get great capital treatment, both for banks and for insurers under SOL2. And therefore, given they can be adopted to straight-through processing and modern IT systems so that the operational efficiency can be high, the capital efficiency can be high for those vanilla products, banks are extremely well-placed to deliver a customer an attractive rate, an attractive product in a way where they've got real process robustness around a vanilla scalable product offering. Louis notes that while these product offerings around things like prime loans, prime mortgages, and other so-called vanilla asset classes may suit banks well, They tend to shy away from areas like small business lending, agricultural lending and construction lending because they come with high operational costs. 
if the product that results is somewhat complex, they can also be tagged with high capital charges. And so that is a lose-lose in modern banking construction. And so you've really seen those go to private credit. And so, you know, I literally see it every single day where you see a product arrive. And if it's a vanilla mortgage, you see how efficient and effective the banks can be. Conversely, if the resulting product is a bridge loan on a second lien on one building and an extended LTV on another building and a personal guarantee and other complexity of that style, even though the aggregation of exposures might result in a very attractive credit lend, you know, these kind of overlapping complexities of kind of off-piste requirements from the borrower doesn't naturally fall into a typical vanilla product for a bank. And therefore, where you have these unique conditions or these specialist requirements for the borrower, they are tending to fall into the private credit world you know, very effectively. The same applies for non-performing loans or restructurings. So take construction loans. If the average construction loan needs to either have the budget recut or the timeline recut in 75% of cases, you know, that is something that's tailor-made for private credit, where each loan has to be handled one by one, and therefore the appropriate manager can work on it without either the cost-income ratio pressure that often exists within a bank or the capital weighting pressure that exists under Ball 3 and, and beyond. And therefore, we've seen a high percentage of that flow in the UK, for example, go into the private credit market very, very effectively. And then if you add on top the operational demands of a restructuring, the underwriting demands of a restructuring, that's something that private credit does really well that would obviously add significant complexity to a bank and therefore would go against the streamlining that many banks are trying to achieve. As Louis mentioned at the top of our interview, the nature of the European markets is that they're very fragmented. I ask him how Arrow relates to those local markets and how important it is to have people on the ground in different places bringing local knowledge. It's an issue we focus on every day. It's core to our business model. So take, for example, if you are the best mortgage servicer in Portugal and you compare that to a similar operation in the Czech Republic, it is likely that there's no overlap of language, no overlap of court process, no overlap of certain aspects of regulation, that the documents you require are different, that the local banks that provide those services in terms of being the end buyers of those mortgages or the end lenders of those mortgages could be completely different. And so getting that expertise to operate locally is fundamental to being effective. I mean, real estate and the credit that attaches to real estate literally happens on the ground. It's the very definition of a local asset. And so if you wanted to figure out whether a certain asset is attractive in Pescara, Italy, and you need to check the planning permission, and you need to check the court file, or you need to check the notary, or you need to check the land registry, or you need to check the loan documentation or the borrower's financial circumstances, it's highly likely that that is best done by being local to that operation. And so we've built Arrow's business model on the strategic premise that having that local presence gives us both an operational advantage in terms of being able to price risk 
and the service advantage and be able to provide the best solutions to both our bank clients and to the ultimate borrowers and to the communities that we serve. And so if you see a, you know, a shopping mall in Kashkais where the borrower wants to get a change of use permission to change the shopping mall into a residential apartment block, you know, of course, having some line of sight to what's happening in that local community, what are the politics of that local community, what are the operating requirements of that local community, and whether that's how fast the planning department moves, you know, what happens in the courts, what's happening in terms of the real estate market in that micro area is, of course, very useful insight versus sitting in a single office like London trying to figure out the difference between a proposition of that type in one part of Europe versus another. We've been through an extraordinary period with the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, social justice movements, inflation and rate hikes. I asked Louis how he's seen market conditions change during the past two plus years and whether it's brought any specific strategies or geographies into sharper focus. I feel like the European market is constantly in flux. So if we roll back over the last 15 years, whether it was the financial crisis, then a Eurozone crisis, then you had Brexit, then you had a pandemic, now you have stagflation or at least rising interest rates simultaneous with rising inflation and what feels like a weakening economy. And so it feels like the underlying topography of what's attractive in Europe from an investor perspective and where the risk pitfalls lie is a constantly evolving situation and one that requires, you know, really constant attention. And so we've done a number of things over the years to try to risk manage for that and to try and meet local demand. So I'll point out a few highlights. We watch weighted average life very carefully. So you look at something like the Netherlands, where there is a profound housing shortage. I think the planning authorities in the Netherlands have only allocated 7% of the landmass of the Netherlands to residential housing. There's a huge percentage of that landmass that's been allocated to farming and other uses. And so there is just a profound housing shortage in the Netherlands. The amount of house builds every year significantly lags family formation in the Netherlands. Equivalently, in the UK, they've had a housing target in terms of new builds, which they really haven't hit since 1978. And so there is a significant housing shortage, as we both know, in the UK, which has led to a consistency of demand for housing. And so if the proposition you're considering has the benefit of that supply-demand equation, you're likely to want to hold more risk and more duration against that proposition. If you're building affordable housing in the UK in an attractive spot, you'd feel comfortable that there is a sustained basis of demand for that end product. I mean, we approved a deal recently in Hampshire, which benefited from a number of macroeconomic factors which were positive. And we really felt when we took that deal through committee that there was a consistency of demand for that product that was likely to survive changes in interest rates and other macroeconomic factors. So that's an example where you're willing to take a bit of duration risk, you're willing to take a bit of market volatility risk because you're producing at the end of the day, whether you're the lender into that product, the buyer of a restructuring in that area, or the equity in such a project, you're really producing an asset that should have resilience given the supply-demand equation that governs that asset. 
ESG is becoming front and centre for investors and fund managers. Given everything that's been happening in relation to inflation, interest rates, war, etc., I ask Louis whether he sees any danger that ESG could become more marginalised than it might otherwise have been, or if it will continue to be as central to investors and fund managers' thoughts as it has been over recent years. I think that varies by investor type and geography to some extent. But I would say that the general theme is that ESG remains very front and center of both investing strategy and in terms of investing expectations. What I would say about ESG is that it really is a continuous improvement methodology that we embrace company-wide. And I think the investor base expects marketplace-wide. Why do I say that? When you look at ESG, there's so many parts to get right. And so much of that agenda is core to having healthy society that it really is central to what we do. And it's central to what I think the marketplace requires. So if you go step by step, I mean, diversity is a core theme. Inclusion is a core theme. Good governance is a core theme. Environmental responsibility is a core theme. Optimizing and and putting in place appropriate reporting so that You measure your impact on whether it's the environment or on the communities that you operate as a core theme. I mean, we can go on and on. I don't think any of those things have lessened their importance due to the distraction of macroeconomic events or or global events. And so what I think is incumbent on leadership, whether that's leadership in fund managers or that's leadership by leading global investors, is to demand continuous improvement. Now, do I think one has to have a degree of maturity around the pace in which that improvement will occur market by market, circumstance by circumstance? Yeah, of course, obviously in areas where there's wars and areas where there's inflation and areas where cost of living is an acute concern, those urgent needs need to be dealt with. But at the end of the day, when you run a corporate culture, If you have a mentality that continuous improvement is an important part of what you do, then that will carry on. There will be a cultural and a organizational tempo which continues to drive betterment on all of those areas. On top of that, you have frameworks that help you get better. So whether it's the UN PRI, whether it's trying to track what you're doing against the UN SDGs, whether it's the European, you know, moving from an Article 6 to an Article 8 fund or even an Article 9 fund. I mean, there's a whole series of frameworks that the different governing bodies have published and encourage people to embrace, which drive that betterment, that transparency as well. From the investor side, given that the market's in flux, they'll be giving very careful thought to the types of managers they want to back, and they'll be considering whether the characteristics they need might be changing in this environment. So I ask Louis, what makes for a good GP today? What are the key factors that investors should consider when looking to select one? I think that's one of those great questions where the answer hasn't ever changed. (laughs) I mean, so much of what we've talked about in this conversation is about the evolving market requirements or the evolving market conditions. But that answer and that question, I think, is one of those timeless, good discipline questions where if you find a manager who has a sustainable competitive advantage, that has a good corporate culture, whose investment philosophy is consistent with yours, and who creates products that you think are fair and represent good risk-adjusted return, 
I mean, one could probably expand the list with a whole series of things, including many of the topics we've talked about, good ESG policies and so on. But I, I think you'll find that in interviewing investors, if those initial considerations are true, great firm, consistent mentality, well-governed, sustainable competitive advantage, culture of risk management that's similar to yours. I mean, if you get those fundamentals right, you probably have a manager you want to work with. If you can create the right alignment and build a really successful partnership, that's what great investing is today. And I think that's what great investing has been since you know, the industry started. And if you follow those timeless principles, I suspect that will be the secret to performing well, you know, long into the future. That again was Zach Louie, Chief Executive Officer of Arrow Global. If you want to hear more episodes of Spotlight, you can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts and PEI's various titles online. For Private Debt Investor, I'm Andy Thompson. Thanks for listening.